I'm going to tell you what this passage is going to be about and what the, what the sermon message is going to be about with this story, okay? This is a true story. This is from the U.S. Naval Institute Proceedings, something, something. This is true, okay? So uh, back in the day, there was a battleship out doing training, out on the high seas, uh, out doing some training, uh, maneuvering, and there's he- they know there's going to be heavy weather. That's why they're out there at this particular time. They've got to be able to maneuver in heavy weather. and So they're out there for several days doing this stuff. And then uh, one night, super, super bad weather and patchy fog, like low visit, what they say, low visibility. So they, get, they just really can't see what's out there. Uh, and, and so it's dark, it's nighttime, and uh, there's a lookout. And this lookout on the battleship uh, yells to his captain, says this, light bearing on the starboard bow, uh, which means there's, there's something out there. And uh, the captain says, is it steady or moving astern? And the lookout replied, steady, captain, which means they're on a collision course, okay? So the captain tells the lookout, signal that ship. We are on a collision course. Advise you change course 20 degrees. And then they get this message back that says, uh, advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. And the captain, the captain says, I am a captain, Change course 20 degrees. He's saying this to the other ship like, you move. And a and, uh, message comes back, says, well, I- I'm a seaman second class. You had better change course 20 degrees. And now the captain is furious. And he spits. And he says, I am a battleship. Change course 20 degrees. And the reply comes back and says, yeah, I'm a lighthouse. And the battleship changed course. Uh, this is, we're going we're gonna to get into the Old Testament here, and we're going to read about this king, the first king of Israel, whose name is Saul. And he is like this battleship, and he doesn't want to listen to God's voice. And he thinks he can keep going on his course, deciding what's right and wrong. He's king now, and he doesn't want to listen to this voice, the voice of God saying, uh, you better change course. And what happens to Saul is, there's this big collision at the end of his kingship. And, and you, 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 this is what we're going to read. And then, like, the so what for us, young ones, the so what for us is, like, think about it. Like, think about your life as, like, this. it's dark and it's foggy and you're not exactly sure where to go. And you are going to hear all these voices in the world shouting out orders to you, like, in the night. Like, go this way, go this way, do this, telling you what to do, telling you how to live your lives. And then out of the darkness, there is one voice that signals something that's like opposite to all the rest of the voices that you're hearing, even your own voice at times. And it sounds, this voice sounds like, and is saying stuff that sounds absurd, but that voice happens to be the light, the light of the world. And if you ignore that voice, you are on a collision course. It is to your own peril that you ignore that voice. But if you listen to that voice, it's the voice of Jesus in his gospel. What we're going to hear this morning, the voice of Jesus and the gospel voice that says, to live, you must believe in Jesus. You must believe in his life and in his death that saves you. And you must trust him all of your life, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how stormy it gets, no matter what happens. Jesus is the one you're supposed to trust. So we're in our sermon series. In this Old Testament book, we're actually in 1st, and then we're going to do 2nd Samuel. And for context, for, for all of us here, 
Israel has come. Here's, the nation Israel comes to its current leader, Samuel, who's, who's not a king. He's a judge. He's the last of these judges who have been ruling over Israel. He's, he's a prophet. And they say to him, Samuel, you're old, uh, and we don't want you as judge anymore, and, and we don't want to wait around till after you die and wait for God to raise up another judge. Like, just give us a king. We want a king. And, and it's, it's, not, it's not so wrong that they asked for a king uh, after Samuel. God had actually promised when he sets up Israel and he's there with Moses, he actually had promised them that when the right conditions were in place, God would give Israel a king. So the problem is, is that Israel demands that Samuel appoint them a king that's just like the nations, a king like the nations. Give us a king like the other nations' kings. And, and God hears this, and he knows, and God says to Samuel, this is, this is not them rejecting you. It's really them rejecting me. And the irony is that the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel, and the Lord tells Samuel, obey the voice of the people. Give them the king they're asking for. And it's this discipline of, you know, be, be careful what you ask for. And the king that they're given is a man named Saul, who, who we're, you know, we're fast-forwarding here just a little bit from where we were last week. And this Saul at the beginning seems so gifted. He seems so promising at the beginning. And then we read this in chapter 13. This happens, and this happens right, right at the beginning of his kingship, okay? Um, and just, there, there are, uh, you know, here's immediate context for this passage in chapter 10. Uh, a lot happens in this brief, brief period, but when Samuel, when Samuel first anointed Saul as king, this is what he said to him. This is back in chapter 10. Samuel told Saul, go down, go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Okay? With that, please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. It says, Saul lived for one year and then became king. Uh, and when he had resigned, when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan, that's his son, in Gabeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all, the Israelite, all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the, Milis, and the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, <clears throat> 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in, in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people follow, followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? 
And Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Mi'kmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gabeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men, Saul and Jonathan his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down in the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So this, uh, this is the beginning of Saul's career as king. Saul just had an amazing victory. Uh, against the Ammonites in the east that we, we didn't read about. Now Saul turns his attention west, and he picks a fight with the Philistines. And it's like poking a bear. The Philistines are professional warriors. They've got all these chariots, uh, thousands, thousands, thousands of chariots, which is like the chariot is like the, the advanced weaponry of the day, like tanks, uh, aircraft, think, think fighter jets. They've got They've got thousands and thousands of charioteers. They've got soldiers as numerous as sand on the seashore. Saul has 3,000 farmers, volunteer fighters. But Saul's plan, though, is to surprise attack. But the word gets out to the Philistines of this previous attack, and the surprise is blown. Their cover's blown. So imagine, imagine, put yourself, imagine you're one of the volunteer Israelite soldiers with your pitchfork in hand standing shoulder to shoulder with your fellow farmers, and the guy next to you has got a shovel. And you're staring down a war machine. You're outmanned, outgunned, and the only guys with swords on your side are the king and his son, and they're not sharing. It's not a shocker that the volunteer army starts dissolving. Israelites take off hiding in caves, and they're hiding in wells, and they're hiding in thickets and bushes, and they're running across the river. They're just fleeing. And Saul sees his army retreating before the battle even begins. He goes from 3,000 to 600 shovel-wielding farmers, so he decides he can't wait any longer, can't wait for Samuel. And so Saul screams out, okay, like bring me the sacrifices. And just as he's finishing the offerings, Samuel arrives. And Samuel is not happy because Samuel could not have been clearer in his instructions to Saul. And it is still, it's still the seventh day. But Saul starts defending himself and making excuses. He's like, look at my, look at my failing army. 
And I know, I know you said seven days, but seven days is almost up. And honestly, I didn't think you were going to show. And the Philistines are just over there. And so I made the call myself. Let's go ahead. Let's get God's favor. Let's get on with this battle. And the Bible study can wait. Samuel, in response, does not say, hey, man, I get it. Like, this is literally life and death stuff. And you're new. You're new to this, and you're doing your best. That's not what he says. What he says to Saul is, you have forfeited the kingdom. God is taking it away from you. And it, it's not that Saul is not going to be king anymore. He is. It's that Saul will not have a dynasty He's not going to have that dynastic succession coming from him. Uh, his son, Jonathan, won't be king. It says, God has chosen someone else to be king after you. The Lord has sought a man after God's own heart. And this is where commentators, and maybe even you're feeling some of this yourself, they come in and they object. And they're trying to defend Saul here. Like, come on. This is an emergency and he's a king. He's supposed to act. He's supposed to make decisions. And this infraction seems microscopic given the conditions. Like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. What is the big deal? Is this a big deal? Yeah. God is not picking on Saul. And the punishment shouldn't come as a surprise to Saul. So much, much, much earlier, as we mentioned right before the reading, much earlier when God established Israel through Moses... Uh, and he tells Moses, hey, there are going to be future kings, and this is what is required of the future kings of Israel. It says this in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17. One of the very, very specific requirements for kings is that they have to get the law from the priests, and they have to make their own copy. The kings have to go through the law, and they have to write up their own copy of the law. And it's got to be approved by the priests. Uh, and then the king has to read it and study it every day and do it. It's, it's amazing. The, the Israel's king is the only person in the Bible that has required daily devotions. He has to study it every day and know it so that when he speaks, he's not speaking his own authority, but he's speaking the authority of God. God's king over Israel will know he is not the final authority. God is. Now, Saul's kingship from the beginning is constrained by God's kingship. God is big king, Saul is little king over God's people. Israel king, Israel's kings, you've got great freedom. It's incredible. You have great freedom in leading the people, but according to God's authority and rule. So, as we said, like when Samuel, the judge, the prophet of God, when he anointed Saul as king, right at that moment, he is making the point. He's making this point that you're the little king, there's a big king. And he does this by giving the new king instructions. I mean, it's crazy. Like, you're king now. Here's what you're going to do. And here's what happens. He gives him instructions from God, and Saul has to obey and follow these instructions. One, go down to Gilgal ahead of Samuel. That's not an option. Do it. Two, wait for seven days until Samuel comes to you. Again, not optional. Wait. Three, last, when Samuel comes after seven days, then he will tell Saul what he is to do next. Meaning more instructions for the little king is coming from the big king. The big deal here is 
this new little king refuses to obey a direct command from his commander himself. Saul knows he was disobeying a direct command. And, and the emergency, like, conditions, situation of the whole thing actually is highlighting just this point. Saul, as king, refuses to obey his king when it's costly, when it's inconvenient, when it seems dangerous. Like, earlier, earlier when Israel fought the Ammonites, they actually had tens of thousands of armed men. It was more convenient for Saul then to obey God. Never mind that Saul is down to 600 rag-tag farmers. It's that, that misses the point. Like It should have been obvious with 3,000 farmer soldiers that they were up against an innumerable, unstoppable force. And that, of course, it was going to take a, a miracle from God anyways for any of them to get out of there with their lives. So all of Saul's excuses really reveal who Saul is is. He's a king like the nations. He's a king who thinks his authority is ultimate authority, and he doesn't have to listen to anyone else. He doesn't have to obey anyone else, because Saul knows better than Samuel, and Saul knows better than God. And if Saul is going to rule by denying God's rule, if he's going to rule by, refu by refusing to submit to God's rule, then his line will not be the kings of Israel. There's a story about uh, King James VI, a.k.a. King James I, the James that's responsible for the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, this King James was good friends with a preacher, a pastor by the name of Robert Bruce, who was also the moderator of the Church of Scotland. Okay, so they're friends, and then they had this major falling out over church and, and politics. And one Sunday, when Robert Bruce is preaching, King James is there, and he's in the royal gallery. And he's with his royal court. Uh, and he's up there and he's not listening to the sermon purposefully. Instead, he's talking to his court during the sermon. And the talking gets louder and louder because James is trying to make the point he doesn't want to listen to Robert Bruce. He doesn't want to hear what he had to say. And so Robert Bruce stop, stops preaching. And the silence gets awkward enough to where King James stops speaking. And then Robert Bruce starts again. And he starts speaking again. And then a minute later, King James starts speaking again over Robert Bruce. And so again, Robert Bruce stops preaching. Enough awkward silence. King James stops speaking. Again, Robert Bruce starts preaching. And again, for a third time, the King, King James starts talking over him. Okay, but this time, instead of going silent, Robert Bruce, he looks at the royal gallery, and he points directly at King James, and he says, When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel. It becomes the petty kings of the earth to be silent. <laughs> that shut up King James. Like, for the day. Like, he shut up. Okay, uh, Samuel's rebuke here, it shuts up King Saul. But for like a day. The, but the writing on the wall, if that, I think that's a phrase. The, you, know, you know, this is it for Saul because he really does believe in his excuses 
for his disobedience. Like his refusal to submit to God's command, there's a good reason for it, Saul believes. Because again and again and again, all the way to the end of 1 Samuel, Saul refuses to listen to the voice of God. Over and over, he chooses his authority over God's authority. Saul chooses his will over God's will. And here's a question to us, a question that all of us, you know, the people of God, you know, from, from there were a people of God up till now in the church, we ask ourselves, we ask each other this question of, about knowing the will of God. Like, what is God's will for my life? And definitely like major crossroads moments, you know, like where do I go to school, what job to accept, you know, where to move, where to live, should I marry, who should I marry, if I'm married, like, and, and, and then with all this ordinary day-to-day stuff, like what is the will of, like you're going into a meeting and you're thinking like, God, what, what should I say? Uh, you, you know, your time, like today, I know you're thinking like, how should I spend the rest of my day? Like, who should I spend time with? Like, there's not enough time in the day to do all that I've got to do. What do I do? Your money. Like, what do I do? How do I spend my money? I mean, it's this thing of what does it mean for Jesus to be not only Savior of my life, but the Lord of your life? King, okay, King Jesus is in charge. How do I get my instructions from the man upstairs? And that question is one that, the, again, the church has always struggled with. Uh, and the struggle didn't always yield good fruit. I mean, this is early church stuff. This is second century life, so you're talking hundreds stuff. Clement of Alexandria said, if you really want to follow Christ, okay, when you're taking a bath, use cold water. And get rid of all your colorful clothes, because in heaven we're only going to be wearing white, right? And no musical instruments. Go and follow Jesus. Okay, that Tertullian, and these are great, I like these are great theologians from back in the day. Tertullian, second century, he warned guys not to shave. If you really want to follow Jesus, don't defy what the Creator has made you to do, has made you to be by cutting your, you know, hairs on your face in unnatural ways. Like, don't do it. Like, okay, if you can't see where you're going, sure, maybe trim the top. If you can't get food in your mouth, okay, trim that mustache just a little bit. But otherwise, like, leave it alone and stop it. And uh, also, don't sleep on soft pillows. Because soft pillows make for a soft life, make for soft Christians. <laughs> okay, and we do, and we laugh, and, and, and yeah, and then a, a lot of us do have this, what my uh, former professor, who's been such a help here, uh, Gordon Hugenberger, calls a spiritual agoraphobia. Like, you don't like the open space. You'll want some bumper lanes to keep you going exactly where you think God wants you to go. So people, we, add legalisms to cover all the, like, what-ifs that aren't covered in the Bible. Like, what can you watch on TV and the Netflix? Uh, rules about bathing suits, and it's just all, all, like, all the things. And at the same time, at the same time, like, we want to know God's will, and I don't want to know the will of God. Not for me. Like, we'd rather remain aloof to the will of God because well, I have my own will for my life. And, and, and very often what I want to do and what God wants me to do, they just don't always match up. It's not always in sync. If God's will for me is what I think it is, then I don't want to know God's will because I don't want it to be what it is. 
So we're, we're at war in our own heads, in our own, own heads, own hearts. We want to know the will of God because we don't know it. And, but we don't want to know it because what if God's will for my life is not my will for my life? This is the battle for Christians who profess to submit their lives to the lordship of Jesus. And, and a lot of the confusion, a lot of the confusion in our own hearts is due to a confusion over God's wills. And I, I mean that plural, God's wills. Uh, God has two wills, which may sound blasphemous, but it's true. Like when you ask, what is the will of God? It begs the question, which will? Because there is the, what we would call, what the Bible, the revealed will of God. Like, God's will, as it is revealed in the Bible, things like the Ten Commandments, don't do this, do this, don't do that, do this. Okay, there's that revealed will, and then there is the, quote, providential will of God, a.k.a. the eternal will of God, a.k.a. God's decretive will, whatever you want, there are tons of names for all this stuff, uh, but... All, it's this, this providential will is all that he has decreed from eternity that will come to pass providentially, sovereignly, by God's design and work. God's providential, eternal will is all things that actually do happen. Everything that happens, and you can't know it in advance unless, unless God gives his people a prophecy of his providential will. Like, hey, this is going to happen in the future. Okay, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So his revealed will, what should be? His providential will, what will be? And we struggle with both. We struggle with both wills. Like his revealed will, we can know in the Bible, like what is true, what is good, and so often, we don't like it. I don't like that because I want to be Lord of my life, and I want to say what's true, and I want to say what's good for me. And then his providential will, like we struggle with it because I want to know where I'm going. Like, I want to know where I'm going to be in five years. I want to know when I'm going to die, and I want to know if I can avoid it. This is also where our lordship bumps into the lordship of the Lord of creation. And we should, we should want God's will for our lives. Yes. And we should pray for wisdom to know better the will of God for our lives. And we should continue to gather around the word of God to know and understand and be equipped by the revealed will of God for our lives and those providential parts of his will that he has revealed to us. And there's so much we can know what God wants for us. Like, most basically, what does God want me to do? He wants you to love him. And he wants you to love your neighbor. He wants your eternal salvation. And he wants you to be growing in your likeness to Christ right now, today, tomorrow. And so then it becomes the thing of like, whatever it is you find yourself doing, because you have the freedom to do a lot of things, whatever it is you're doing, are you doing it in love for God with whatever strength he has given you to do it. The will of God for your life is not like walking a tightrope. Well, if you take one misstep, you are headed for a great fall. No, 
and you will misstep, and you will fall, and you will face suffering, and you will face all kinds of evil. And there is so much of God's providential will that you will not know, and you can't. And here's a big, like, so what application for us with the will of God. Another pastor said this so well. Uh, thank you, Brian Habig. He, he said, rather than let what you see trump what God has said, you have to let what God has said trump what you see. You want to know the will of God. You're going to face evil, suffering, and when that happens, and you're going to question what is God doing, rather than let what you see trump what God has said, you have to let what God has said trump what you see. You're going to see horrible things. You're going to see scary things. And you must remember and you must trust that God's providential, eternal will includes everything that happens from bad leaders and bad kings uh, to suffering in your life to the evil that's all around us. His eternal will includes everything that happens, big and small, and that means God's providence. It does also include evil and suffering. The night before Jesus dies, Jesus knows he's going to die, and he's thinking about his death, and not just the death that's, that's you know, involved on that cross, but the wrath to come. And not for anything he's done, but the just wrath to come on sinners for whom he will suffer and die. And that night, all alone, he prays to God his Father asking, if there is any way, take this from me. But then he says, but yet not my will, but yours be done. And this is where we get stretched and we get overwhelmed by this mystery Jesus, who's fully God and fully man, Son of God, asks God the Father to do something. And God the Father, who has said on multiple occasions about Jesus, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And, and this Son has, has repeatedly said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. The Son of God asks God the Father to do something, and God the Father answers with silence. Meaning the answer is, no, it is my will crush you. And here is where here is where we have to consider the question that our neighbors are asking. What does your what does you'll hear this in all kinds of like what does your christianity say about me? Like the the unbeliever, the non-christian will ask you, do you think I'll be okay when I die? What do you think happens to us non-christians who don't believe in Jesus? What do you think happens to us when we die? There are a lot of different ways uh, that you're going to hear that question asked. All of them come down to this. It really is this thing of, what does your God say about me? What is your God's will for my life and my death? And it is tempting. It is very tempting to say something like, for me, you know, for my tradition, Jesus takes care of it. And, and, and that, that's what I believe, that's what he has said, and I believe it with all that I am. But, you, you know, what God does with other religions and what God does with other people, I, that's, that's between them and God. I just, I, I, I got to trust Jesus, he's going to take care of me. And when we say something like that because, we're tempted to say something like that, because we care for those people 
whether they're family or they're friends or they're just strangers who we think are made in the image of God, like they're humans. And we want to assure them. We want to assure them that whatever happens with death at the end, they'll, they'll be okay no matter what. But loved ones, you, I, we do not have the authority to say such a thing. Because what Jesus says right here to the Father is, is there any other way? And the Father says, there is no other way. And so the next day, Jesus goes to the cross willingly. God looks at Israel and he says, and listen, you're Israel too. This is your heritage too. God looks at Israel and he says, uh, looks at his people, he says, I've delivered you out of Egypt, out of slavery, into a paradise land flowing with milk and honey, and you deserve none of it, a heavenly inheritance you did not work for, and I will be your king, and you will be my beloved people. Let's dwell together in love. And we, the people, say, no, we'll run away. Well, I'll send, I'll send you prophets if you run away. We'll ignore them. I'll send you priests We'll corrupt them. I'll send you kings. We'll corrupt them and then they'll corrupt us. I'll send you my son. We'll kill him. And so God sends his son who comes to do the will of the one who sent him. To bear the punishment of those who have rebelled against God's authority, rejected his love, and run away. And when, when he rises from the dead and is declared to be king of kings and lord of lords, he looks at us. He looks at his people who he has saved, and he says, I will be your king, and I will be with you always. What is God's will for you today? It is to know and believe this gospel and to trust whatever happens, he is in control. To know he is God and you are not. And that your God, your King, that He will never leave you and He will never forsake you. Let's pray. Father, we bow. Our, I don't know why I, I just turned that off. Father, we bow our heads, we bow our hearts, uh, and we lift up the name of Jesus. Uh, and as we, as we come here to gather, Father, we, we want to be reminded. We thank you for the, <clears throat> we thank you for the reminder uh, in your word <clears throat> that, that as we come to, to be equipped, as we come uh, to hear the gospel proclaimed, we are reminded <clears throat> that we do not sit over your word as if to master it. We come in order to sit under your word, in order to sit under your authority, in order to be mastered by our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would continue to do that <clears throat> in your word, in our, in our prayers, Lord, in this sacrament. Uh, Father, we, we ask that you would continue to lead us. And Lord, when we stray, that you would continue to bring us back all by the, the power of your spirit working in your means of grace, working in one another. Father, bless us to, to be uh, 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 sharing that gospel with one another. Uh, Lord, to, to be constantly seeking you, to be constantly seeking your kingdom above everything else, and certainly above our own kingdoms, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.